When I look at this congregation or our nation, I want to see God move more. There's my, there's, there's, there's my prideful, um, there's my selfish request. I want to see God move more. I'm desperate for more of God. I see the failures in my own life. I see the sin in my own life. And I realize that I am not capable of this on my own. There is nothing that I can do on my own to save people. There is nothing that I can do on my own to better myself short of working with God, reading the Scripture, praying, and desiring to be more conformed to the image of Christ. That's about the extent of what I'm capable of. There's not many things that I'm good at. I want to look more like Jesus. I want to look more like Christ. I want to see people love God and love Jesus and worship Him and honor Him more and more every day. My heart breaks for this town. It breaks for so many that will neglect God because they do not like what His Word says. I want to start off uh, this morning first uh, in prayer, and then I would like to, I would like to bring a, a great amount of encouragement to you. Father, we thank You, Lord, again for um, Your grace. Yeah, we thank You for Your presence. We thank You for Your Word. And we thank You that though... We live uh, in a world that is tumultuous, God, in a, in a society that is crumbling morally, politically, ethically, what have you. God, that we are founded upon the rock of Christ Jesus and that we can have our hope and assurance and our faith put into Him rather than things of this world that are fleeting, that go away, that, that fail us, that, that, that lie to us, that deceive us, that steal from us. God, that we would look to the One who is all-providing, who is all-powerful, who's all-knowing, who is perfectly just, who is perfectly loving. God, we look to You for strength. We look to You for guidance. We look to You for encouragement in this season, knowing that You and You alone are God. God, just point our eyes to Christ. Help us to see Him in the message today. Help us to see Him in corporate worship today and move in a mighty way in Wakeman, Ohio. Father, it's in Your name we pray in accordance with Your will we ask. Amen. So this was uh, an email that, uh, that we received at the church. Uh, this was actually last Sunday, um, about two hours after everybody had left. And so as Christy and I were sitting in the sanctuary and we were talking with a couple people, this, this literally beeped in right around that time. Holy greetings to you in the mighty name of Jesus, Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. Grace to you and peace from our Abba and Adonai, Yeshua. So Yeshua would be the, the Hebrew translation of Jesus. I'm writing to you from, I'm going to omit the, the country's name, and it was by the grace of our mighty Lord that I visited your webpage, and that would be wakemanchurch.net, via the internet, and was pr privileged to find your contact. 
After prayerfully reading your website, I was spiritually charged, moved, and thrilled since I came to realize that we share a common faith in the God, or excuse me, in God. We're a young, growing ministry whose major aim is to plunder hell and populate heaven. By so doing, we practice Bible studies, prayer, and evangelism to various areas to meet and restore more lost souls. Besides the gospel, our ministry is dedicated to changing lives and bringing hope to children in need in our ministry. We, have, uh, we are looking for caring children that their parents passed and others who don't have a home to stay, so orphan and orphanage ministry. Our vision is a world where children are living as disciples of Yeshua, free from spiritual, economic, and social poverty. I'm making a humble prayer request to our Father that He may touch your heart so that you may come to us and help us in discovering the truth of God. Secondly, I would invite you to come and fellowship with us and see the work that we are doing. It would be great for you to have a chance to teach your sound doctrine to us, to preach, baptize, and also establish your mission work here. There's only one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all in you all. I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making a request for you with all joy. For we are hoping to be in fellowship with you. Being confident of this, of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus. Just as it is right for me to think of you all since I have you in my heart, a ministry well done by his faithful servants brings glory and honor to God our Father. Uh, this is one of a couple emails that we've actually received over this last week. Um, again, that one from uh, a faraway country. Uh, also, um, people in the local area who have been looking in from the outside who have seen some of the things that have gone on here and witnessed or heard about some of the things that have gone on here. And this is what they've said. Keep going. Don't stop. Be encouraged. There are churches, multiple churches that are praying for us right now. And this is, this is, their, this is their request, that you continue to be faithful to the Word of God and do not falter though the opposition is great. Right now, we have people who are accessing the content that we're able to put out here. Again, a grace of God from Africa, multiple countries in Europe, uh, all over the United States. Um, Jason, do we have South America? Not yet? Okay. Lord willing, one of these days, South America. But I want you to understand that this ministry, though it is... Um, from the outside looking in, it seems difficult right now that God is using this ministry in a mighty way. And again, understand that this ministry is not me. This ministry is us, plural. It's the local church that God is using to do mighty things across the world. And people are starting to take notice. So I want to encourage you. I want to push you forward uh, in, in, in everything that I can do to, to promote your growth in likeness to promote your desire to, to jump into the Scriptures and read of Him. And to understand the things that are most important are the things that have already been written. The Word of God. And sharing that with others. So again, um, what a blessing we have. Uh, what a blessing we have in the ability to have a ministry that is free from things like overt persecution or fear of too much government pushback here in America. Those should be all things that we're, um, we're very happy about.
there's something special. Um, I think there's something very special about when the saints get together and they actually sing praise to God and you can hear their voices. Um, you know, when we look at actually what corporate worship of God is, uh, at least through song, our theology, so our understanding of who God is, our understanding of the Bible should always drive our doxology, which is the praise of God. And so anytime that we have improper theology, if we think that God is something that He is not, and we worship Him as that something that He is not, then our doxology will be tainted. Our doxology in and, itself, in and of itself will not be a good thing. So in order to properly worship God, to properly praise God, we have to know who God is. Which is why I'm always saying we have to be in our Bibles. Uh, Jason's uh, very kindly put up um, under our resources, if I'm not mistaken, a link to a great Bible reading plan. Uh, it's the, the Robert uh, Murray McShane uh, reading plan. Uh, phenomenal. You read about four chapters of the Bible a day. Uh, it, it'll be one chapter from four different books, usually two Old Testament, two New Testament books. And you systematically work your way through the Bible uh, in about the course of a year. And so that if that's not something that might interest you, you can chop that in half and do maybe uh, two chapters a day. If you want to do more, there's other great plans. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, John could talk to you about a great Bible reading plan that he's on right now. Um, but ultimately, we should be fed spiritually by the Word of God. And so many times, there were, you know, Jesus would, would, would sneak off uh, in the, uh, the, his, his inner ring. Uh, they would say, Lord, what, what are you doing? Where are you going? He says, I, I, have, I have bread to eat that you know not of. When I commune with my Father, when I dive into the Word, when I pray to Him, when I fellowship and commune with Him, I am being fed spiritually. And so the last thing that we want as Christians is to be spiritually malnourished. And the quickest way to do that, the easiest way to do that is by not reading the Bible. So make that a habit in your life. Um, make that a, a primary focus um, of your day and of your Christian walk. If you will, please join me in prayer before we jump into John chapter 1. Lord, again, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the incarnate Word, Christ Jesus. Lord, that You would condescend, that You would send Your Son, that You would uh, be so loving and so kind and so gracious, uh, Lord, towards lost humanity, that You would be willing to sacrifice Your own Son on a cross, on a piece of wood that You Yourself have created. Lord, help us to see Christ in this. Help us to see You in this. Help us to draw together all these teachings, all these understandings, God, of, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, how they work perfectly together. How they, they, they speak of You. They speak of Christ and they point us to the way of salvation. Lord, let us be faithful uh, in that quest. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that will be open and willing to respond to the Gospel message in the message about Christ Jesus. Lord, it is in Your name we pray and according to Your will we ask. Amen. So we have a single verse sermon today. Uh, it's very dense. Uh, this is a very, uh, just a, a theologically rich verse. It's John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 16. Please flip there, and while you're flipping there, um, I just want you to remember again that this is, uh, this is real. This is real. This isn't some fairy tale. This isn't uh, some false made-up religion. Uh, this isn't historically inaccurate. 
This is literally the most historically attested and verifiable document on the planet before we get things like video recorders and cameras. When we look at just the, uh, the, the partial manuscript evidence, for example, of the Old Testament, or excuse me, of the New Testament, uh, we have close to 20,000, close to 20,000 complete or partial manuscripts of either the, the whole New Testament or, or certain books of the New Testament, all of those which were written within 100 years of the events actually taking place. That, when we look back on, on documents of antiquity, again, is absolutely foreign to history. The Bible is the only ancient book with that many manuscripts. And when we hold those manuscripts against one another, we can uh, more or less boil down the fact that we have 99.98-ish percent of what the New Testament Christians would have had with the close of the canon. Do you know what the, the remaining 0.12% is? Things like punctuation. That's about it. Punctuation and ifs and does, stuff like that. So nothing in any way whatsoever that would detract from our understanding of who God is or put some weird spin on any major theological principle. We literally have 100% of what is necessary. Which means when, when, when I get people who, and I've had many people come up and tell me stuff like this. Hey, uh, you know, Pastor Jay, um, the Lord is telling me to tell you this. I say, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on for a second. Unless you're just about to read me Scripture, you might not want to say anything. Because if God has indeed given you words of God, what I am forced now to do is hold what's about to fall out of your mouth on equal footing with the Bible. You see how dangerous that gets? That's how we get things like cults. That's how we get things like uh, very aberrant teaching. Uh, we get things like uh, Jesus wasn't the Son of God because I'm Jesus. And if someone claims that they speak on behalf of God and they're saying that, what, what, what standard do we have to hold them to? if they can trump the Bible itself. And so that's why I'm always saying default to the Scripture. Default to the Scripture. Go back to the Bible. And guess what? If you're going to go encourage a brother or sister in Christ, say, hey, guess what God put on my heart? Something He's already said. Let me show you where it is. Let me share this truth with you. Because guess what? The Holy Spirit is prompting me right now to share this with you. And here's what you can rest assured of, that what they're about to say is not going to be Yahoo. It's not going to be crazy. It's not going to be out there. It's going to be something that God's already said, which means it's perfect. Which means that it jives with the whole rest of the Bible. And in that, we can have faith and, 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 and peace and trust and joy. Secondly, um, I want to put this out there because uh, I'm not a prophet. Understand that. I don't think that I'm a prophet in any way whatsoever. I believe that there are no prophets anymore. Personally, we can discuss that offline. I believe that passed away with the, the closing of the canon in the New Testament with John, the Revelator, who I would argue is the last biblical prophet. I can promise you that as long as I have life and breath, as long as God allows words to continue flowing from my mouth, 
that I will not in any way whatsoever default, punt, kick, abuse, malign, or twist the Scripture in order to look more like our society. Because here's what's going to happen. I can promise you this. Our society will continue to decay morally. It will continue to divide politically. And here's what many, I'm going to air quote this, what many churches will do. They will start to soften the message of the Gospel. They will start to not preach certain doctrines. They will start to do things that align themselves more with culture than the people of God or the Scriptures. Why? Because they will be afraid. They will be afraid and they will flee from our culture rather than stand and confront it. I want to promise you here today that as long as I am alive, that will never happen here. As long as God gives me the ability to articulate the truth of God in Scripture, that will not happen here. There's, there's a, a common saying, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. That's a pretty biblical, biblical truth. When society is flaming out around us, let's punch back, I don't know, 2,000 years to first century Judea. When society is flaming out around us and people are literally putting Christians up on crosses after they've dipped them in tar and then light them on fire so that they might provide light at night for parties or just as street lamps. When culture caved that hard, when cult prostitution, when hunting people down and throwing them into uh, coliseums to be devoured by wild animals, the vast majority of them Christians, when culture did that, did we see literally any of the church fathers grabbing the Bible and saying, you know what? I don't want anything to do with this. We see the exact opposite. We see them diving deeper. And we see the persecuted church throughout human history. And we can go from the persecution under the Roman Empire. We can go through uh, the, the Inquisitions. We can go through uh, the Protestant Reformation. We can go through uh, any type of evangelistic or missionary effort to anywhere on the planet. Every single place where there is persecution of the people of God, guess what happens? The church grows. It grows. When Christians start dying, all the people who don't want Christianity run away. And guess, what's happened? guess what happens? The Christians pull tighter, which makes the world look at them more and understand, or try to figure out, try to understand why it is that they're doing what they're doing. Because I've said this before, I'll say it again. Christianity is a terrible hobby. It's an awful hobby. Go get a boat. Go, go get a nice car or uh, a plane if you don't want Christ. Because at least then you won't be persecuted. At least then you won't be called crazy. At least then you won't be reading some old book that nobody really cares about. When we look around this room right now, we realize that not many of us would be here if this was not a church. Not many of us would be friends or even know each other if this was not a church. 
Yet what is the tie that binds Christians? Christ and Christ crucified. It's a small aside, but I think it's important for us to hear. John chapter 1, verse 16. I want you to literally look at this and I want you to rejoice when we read this. This is amazing. John 1.16, For of His fullness we have received and grace upon grace. That's it. That's the whole sermon text right there. For of His fullness, of Jesus' fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. Our first and only point, the fullness of God was and is in Christ. The fullness of God was and is in Christ. Christ is the fullness of grace. Christ is the fullness of grace. So listen to the text. His fullness is literally God's fullness. That we have received the fullness of God in Christ. Uh, this is, these aren't going to be up on the board, but Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him, Jesus, His head over all things to the church, which is His body. Here it is. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. Ephesians 3.19 And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of of God. Colossians 1.19 For it was the Father, so God's, it was God's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Who's the Him? Jesus. Finally, Colossians 2.9-10 For in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, in Jesus, you have been made complete. And He, Jesus, is the head over all. Rule and authority. Everything. Absolutely everything in this universe has been subjected to Christ Jesus. He is sovereign. He is our King. So that is why, let me explain to you, one of these simple tenets of Christianity, that is why Christ is so offensive. That's why He is so offensive. That's why so many in our culture, what do they try and do? They try and reduce Jesus. They try and reduce the Christ to what? Like a good moral teacher, uh, a sage, a wise man, or just some guy who uttered some proverbs and did some teaching in the desert. Everyone's heard that before. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm Buddhist. I love Jesus. He was a good, good moral teacher. Okay, well do you know Him? No, but he was, he was pretty big on this thing called love, and I like love, so you know, yeah, I love Jesus. So you know nothing of Him, yet you want to proclaim that, that He was just a good teacher? What happens, think about this, what happens if we strip away the deity of Jesus Christ? What are we left with? Some dude wandering around acting like a weirdo. To be perfectly honest, doing some really cool magic tricks. That's what we have. Which means that we have no salvation. We have no uh, blood atonement. We have nothing if Jesus was just a man. If He wasn't God. I want you to understand this is also why many who profess to be Christians do not want to listen to what Jesus says. Why? Here it is. Talked about the deity issue. Because He was and He is God. Man loses his soapbox, his perceived high horse, and he's stripped of all of his relative truth. So everything that we think that we can bend or twist into a making of our own and say, ha ha, 
I found it. I have arrived. This is my truth. This is my standard. Guess what God does, does or says? You're a fool. If you think that you are going to construct some better way than what I have commanded or provided. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Man is left spiritually undone and without excuse when he or she steps into the presence of the Almighty and wages war. I understand that people 2,000 years ago didn't know what to do with Jesus. I would argue that they still don't know what to do with Jesus in general. Here was God among men literally laughing at the stupidity of their tricks and of their traps. Think about all the times that anyone literally wanted to step into the ring and actually try and debate Jesus Christ. How'd that wind up for them? Pretty badly. They got pretty angry, and usually they were just made to look foolish. There's nothing wrong with that. I want you to understand that. There's nothing biblically wrong with that. Psalm 2, verses 1-4. through Why are the nations in an uproar, and why are the people devising a vain thing, or making foolish plans? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's kill these fools. Let's do away with them. Let's toss them out in the midst. Here's the next verse. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Here's why God laughs at them. Here, here, here's, 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 here's why He scoffs at them. Because they have tried to raise themselves up as God and tell God that His way is wrong. In Psalm 2.5, which would be the verse that literally just comes right after what we read, it says that God speaks to them in His anger and terrifies them in His fury. You see, Jesus did the same thing. He amazed and He astonished, but He spoke with such authority. Why? Not because He was just some guy who figured a couple things out and started talking in the desert. He spoke with such authority because He was and He is God. And the very words that proceeded from His mouth usually were already spoken by God and written down in things like the Old Testament. And any one of the reasonings that he used, any one of the, the ways in which he would choose to argue or interact with people, guess what? was perfectly biblical. All 613 Mosaic laws, check, 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 all the way to the end. Even when he did things like this, braid together a couple pieces of leather and whip people out of the temple. All 613 Mosaic laws, check, 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 check. Even though in great anger, in great distress, he drove people away from profaning the worship of his Father. Loving, holy, and just was every single bit of that action. I'm sure the religious leaders and the authorities of the day said things like this, quote, He speaks so arrogantly. He speaks so unlovingly. He speaks too authoritatively. What nerve he has. Who does he think he is? He's so young. He's so uneducated. He doesn't come from a good family. And he's so prideful. I can imagine them saying things like that. Why? Because they plot to kill him throughout half of the New Testament. 
Christ crushed them with the truth of the Scripture. Look at, look at His mission. Look at what He did. Satan tried to undo Him in the desert. What did Jesus do? Did He fist fight Him? Did Jesus get into a, uh, um, some type of debate with Him? Jesus punched Satan in the face with Scripture over and over and over. And what did Satan do? He lost and he fled. He, the incarnate Son of God, could have utterly destroyed Satan with a blink of his eye, with a look or a word, but he, Jesus, understand, was and is God. The fullness of God's deity dwelt in Christ Jesus, still dwells in Christ Jesus. What did he use to come against Satan? Scripture. Scripture. He smote Satan with Scripture. I can also imagine this being said of Christ, perhaps by Satan himself. Quote, Every time I try to ensnare him, every time I try to argue with him, every time I try to come against him, this bearded weirdo uses Scripture. Huh. Hmm. I can't win by arguing from a worldly perspective because Jesus crushes me with the Word of God. I cannot do things like argue against it because I know that it's true, and I cannot reason around it. I must do one of two things. I must either agree with Him or hate Him. As I do not agree with the Word of God, I will hate Him. I can imagine Satan saying something like that though he knew the Scriptures were true. Though he had watched them unfold exactly in the manner in which God said they would unfold. I want us collectively, I, want, I, I hope and pray for this town to wake up and see that this is literally the same logic of the Israelites with the prophets of God in the Old Testament. What did, most of them, what did they do with most of them? beat the brakes off of them or killed them. Or hated them. Think about that for a second. Do you not see that this is the exact same logic of those who killed Christ? I want us to see that this is the same logic of those who listened to the apostles and then railed against, let's say, one of the first deacons. I'll prove it to you. Uh, this is in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. Read of Stephen, the first Christian martyr who was stoned to death, listen to what he was stoned to death for, he was stoned to death after he condensed the truth of God in the Old Testament about the Israelites and their exodus from Egypt and their entrance to the Promised Land into about a chapter of the New Testament. So basically what Stephen was guilty of was proclaiming the truth of Christ and then guess what? Condensed the story of the Old Testament into like, I don't know, a chapter. How many would say that's deserving of death? No. He literally just quoted Scripture, right? Everyone would agree with that. We can look and, 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 and see the cross-references and understand that literally all he was doing was recounting the history of Israel after he proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Christ. He did this and a bunch of people hated him and hated his Christ. Saul, also known as the Apostle Paul, held the coats and stood in agreement with the people who would soon stone Stephen to death 
for the words that came out of his mouth. Here's, how, here's what happened. What did Stephen do? After he explained that the fullness of God dwelled in Christ in Acts 6, verses 8-10, through 10, and Stephen, one of the first deacons, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Oh no, that's terrible, isn't it? Proving that God is God? Using Scripture to do it? And oh, by the way, God has given him great power to perform signs that people might actually believe? He's doing things that, that no normal human being can do. Where was it from? Power of God. Who did, he, who did he profess that that power was from? God. Here's the mistake that he made. He said Jesus is Lord. He basically said Jesus is God. That was the mistake that he made. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and some from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Ah, there it is. Sounds a lot like Jesus to me. Sounds a lot like the Old Testament prophets to me. So after about a chapter of Stephen quoting Scripture, this is what he ends with shortly before he gets rocks thrown into his skull. Acts 7, verses 51-54. through Quote, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, who, by the way, is Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at Him. What did he just do? He told them the truth. They hated him, and so he told them, guess what you're doing? You're continuing to fight against the truth. So what did they do? Gnashed their teeth, closed their ears, and threw rocks at his head. And so while he's literally dying because people are actively killing him, what does he say? He looks up into heaven and says, Lord, receive my spirit. Forgive them, for they know what they do. God, forgive my, the people here who are stoning me to death Forgive them because they're ignorant and blind. He just said it here. Those aren't my words. Verse 51, you're stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Meaning your heart can't receive it and your ears can't receive it and you're stiff-necked. This was a measure of God's common grace that He shared with them. Understand, did, was God constrained to do this? Did, was there some higher power or authority than God who looked down at God and said, hey, um, you need to send your son at some point uh, because that's, you know, that would just only be fair to the humans. No, the answer is absolutely not. And so where does this motivation come from? to send our only begotten Son to have Him slaughtered on a cross. Where does it come from? It comes from God. Try and teach over and over and over and over again that grace is the unmerited favor of God. 
You've done nothing to deserve it. Listen, this should be a thing that makes your heart literally turn and smile. That we did nothing to deserve the Christ. That we did nothing for God to even send Him to the earth in order for us to listen to the message that He might proclaim. That in itself is grace. Not one human being deserved that. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who seeks after God, no, not one. God would have been just and maintained His righteousness, His holiness, and His purity if He had said, I am done with these people after Adam and Eve fell and there were no more humans. By the way, He pretty much did that in Genesis chapter 6 when He killed the entire planet minus eight people. Who will bring a charge against God in His justice? Should that not then motivate us more to look kindly upon the riches of His mercy and His grace? Yes. These people who wound up killing Stephen didn't do anything to deserve the truth that they heard from Him that they hated so much. They hated it to the point of turning into a raging mob of spiritually destitute people who were bent after His destruction. Why? Because their wicked hearts were hardened against the Gospel. Let's look at the last half of, of, of John 1.16. We're going to move from the fullness of the deity of God in Christ Jesus now into grace. Again, it's unmerited favor. Grace. But in our text, the fullness of God, so Christ Jesus, exuded or brought grace upon grace to those who were and are His. And understand, there's, 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 there's a difference between common grace and, and what would a common grace be? That I can have things like a, a cup of hot coffee on a cold day. Common element of God's grace. That I have taste buds to receive uh, the, the taste of that coffee. To feel the warmth of that coffee. That in itself is an element of common grace. That is vastly different from, sa- from saving grace. Or grace in a salvific sense. Vastly different. Please understand there's a difference there. When we look at salvific grace, that is why the hymn says it's amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Like me. Like J. Johns. Who by all worldly standards should have died in some crummy battlefield in a country that nobody knows about. About a billion times. Yet God sustained my life though it was wicked and awful and against Him. in order that He might draw me to Himself. And not bring J. John's glory, but bring Himself glory through the conversion of a wicked man. A terrible man. A man who by society's standards deserved nothing but what He got. Death. But that word amazing as it pertains to grace is so lost on our culture. If we were to go back about two or three hundred years ago, we would have a better understanding of that word amazing or awesome. 
If something is amazing, it is inexplicably wonderful. It overtakes us. It overpowers us. So when we, we hear the word amazing or awesome, it, it, is, it is truly, it's not amazing that a certain sports team won or that we got an A on a really hard test. That's not an amazing thing. That's not at all. It's amazing that God would pour out His fullness into Christ and condescend to come to us, to come to a people who wanted nothing to do with Him and offer a way of salvation. That in itself is amazing. That in itself is truly awesome. How much more beautiful is that grace when we understand that we have done nothing to earn it, nothing to merit it, nothing to comprehend it apart from the movement of the Spirit of God. Ephesians 1, 5-8 He, God, predestined us to adoptions to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace which He, God, freely bestowed on us in the beloved Jesus. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? Our merit or how we worked it or what we did or how good we thought we were or how many times we went to church or how many times we read our Bible? According to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. Soapbox. Man, soapbox pulled out. Man, floating in space here in his own sin Understanding that it's not about man. You want to see God in most churches? Look at the people who come out the door. I'll say that again. You want to see who God is in most churches in America? It's the people walking out the door. Because they will want it their way, at their time, to their liking, or their preference in accordance with a God that they don't even know. So what they will do is raise up and worship a false god and then gnash their teeth when the truth of the Scripture is preached, taught, or shown to them in any way. That is the Gospel. That is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Acts right there. If you could read that little chunk right there, I can guarantee that you will say, oh yeah, that's generally the, uh, what, what happens. Uh, people either try and kill them, or they're converted. I've been saying that since I got here, and, and people used to laugh. They did. I would say there's only two possibilities. I pulled the diaconate aside. Every single one of them. And I said, there are two possibilities. When we teach and when we preach the biblical gospel, there are only two possibilities. People will turn against us with the fierceness of an animal or they will be converted. And there are many of you in here who are seeing that. That is grace that you were seeing that. Why? Because you were seeing biblical principles walked out in front of you in accordance with the will of God with a historical precedent in the Bible itself, specifically between the book of Matthew and Acts. And everything in between. So why did God save us? Why did He give us grace upon grace? Why is there even such a thing as grace? 
That should really be the question that we should ask at this point, not how do I get in on this? Uh, you know, am I, am I not good enough? Uh, shouldn't I have already been in that category? Well, I don't look like, you know, Brother Jay over here. I, I, look, I look more pious and holy than Brother Jay. So shouldn't God love me more? Ephesians 2, 7-9. through Why did God do this? Why did God give this grace? So that in the ages to come, He, God, might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Semicolon. Which means that the clause that's about to come after this, the fact that you're saved by faith, will refer back to the saving by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, semicolon, and that not of yourselves, meaning that faith was not even mustered by you on your own. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. That is the biblical gospel. That is the biblical gospel. I've, I've talked to people who have seen dead bodies before. I know John's seen dead animals before. And I, as I talk to people who have seen dead bodies before, and people who have seen dead animals before, guess what happens when you try and have a conversation with that dead body or that dead animal? Nothing. Nothing. Can they respond? Can they see? Can they hear? Can they interact with? Can they respond in any way whatsoever? They're not even showing brain activity. There's nothing that they can do. They're dead. That's Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 1. By the way, you're dead, spiritually speaking. And it takes a movement of the Holy Spirit on your behalf by the will and intention of God. You will receive an understanding of your sinfulness before a holy God. Hear the Gospel message and not reject it. That you will turn from your sins and believe the Christ. That's the Gospel. That's the truth of the Bible. That that faith that you muster up, again, is not even a work of yourself. It is a gift of God that you have the ability to even have faith. Or when He truly opens up your ability to have free will, when you move from a life that is only bent after wicked things, of, of having a life that is only bent after following wicked, worthless things, where you're a slave to your sin, you're a slave to death, He opens you up gives you a new heart, new eyes, and the ability to respond to Him. Now you have complete free will. It's called efficacious grace. That you will, because of the grace that He has imparted you, lay hold to that thing called the Christ through faith. You will. You absolutely will. People who get that grace don't turn their turn their back and say, I don't want any of this. What, 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 what destitute person in any foreign country, if they're wandering through the desert, and a helicopter flies down right in front of them, kicks up the sand everywhere, and, and, and people just start throwing off buckets of money, or buckets of gold, or buckets of jewels. They give plenty of provision with food and water to this person who's dying out in the desert who has nothing to their name, how many of those dead and dying people would say, 
after the helicopter flew away and there's this giant neon sign saying, this is yours, this is grace. How many of them are going to be like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm out, see ya. I don't want the water, I don't want the food, and I don't want millions of dollars. No one in the history of the world would do that. That's grace. So when God shows up and gives you the ability to see that He even exists, and He lavishes His grace on us in the Beloved, what will we do? We will respond with faith to Christ Jesus. We will say, I do see. I do want. I do need. Because you have moved on my behalf and uh, it's not a result of my works so that I can't boast. It is of you alone. Sproul comments on grace upon grace. Quote, it emphasizes that salvation is a gift. The Reformation expressed this with the motto, sola gratia, which means by grace alone. If verse 17, that would be John 1.17, If it elaborates on this concise phrase, the sense is that the law imparted through Moses was a gift of God's grace that was succeeded by the fuller grace revealed in Jesus, end quote. Let me me explain this to you very quickly. Um, if, If you were walking along the road one day and some bearded weirdo sprints out of the woods, chases you down, and, and shows up and he slaps a title to a brand new vehicle and inside the vehicle it's got $50,000 in gold bullion. Keys are stapled to it. Your name's already on the title. He says, all you have to do is just sign this thing. All you got to do is sign it. I'd sign it. Okay, yeah, no problem. I'll sign it. Here you go. Then he sprints away. Our culture would say that's Grace. That is not the definition of grace because what? Something was required of you in order to receive that gift, which makes it a transaction, which makes it a work, which means that you can now boast in the fact that you technically, if we want to get down to the finest legal detail, you were the one who made that thing happen. Situation two, you're walking along the street, the bearded weirdo in the woods, runs down, slaps the title into your hand that's in your name. It's already got your signature on it. He smiles, then he sprints back into the woods. Now that you've got the key, you know that the vehicle belongs to you, are you going to sit there and walk away from it? You're going to put that key in there and turn the thing on. That's faith in Christ Jesus. It's efficacious. Grace. It will bring about God's desired effect in your life if you will but look to the Scriptures and believe in the Christ. I, I want to I literally scream this from the rooftops. I mean, if there was a better way to get up to the belfry minus a little trap door up there, I think I would probably scream at people as they walked by that Jesus is the Messiah. I wish I had the power to awaken people from spiritual death and literally bring them into spiritual life. I wish I could give them things like ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond, but I am not able. I, you, if you are a Christian, are but a tool in the hands of the master craftsman. He's beautifully carving the fullness of His masterpiece here in us as Christians. 
And at times, it may seem as though that statue or that painting is incomplete, that it is rough, or it is less than attractive. But I want to let you in on a small biblical secret. He who begins good works finishes them. He finishes them. He doesn't slacken His promises. He doesn't uh, leave us, neglect us, abandon us, forsake us, or try to confuse us in any way. He says, in essence, here's what this boils down to, give me everything you are in everything you own, and I, God, will make you into the image that I want. What's that image? The image of Christ. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Where are we going to get that renewing? The Bible and prayer. Where will we not get that renewing? The world, our opinions, our presuppositions, our tradition, our family, uh, uh, the clubs that we belong to, our own works. We'll squat from that. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You step into the Scripture you start praying, you'll have everything. Everything. God is saying, I want to make you into the image of my Son. And you will not look exactly like Him in this world, but you will continue to be conformed to His image by Me, God. My grace is sufficient. My unmerited favor towards you as a Christian is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. My power is perfected in your weakness. In your lowly estate, in the understanding of the fact that you are not God, I am. And if you will but lay down your sword against me, and believe me, I will give you eternal life. when I look at this congregation or our nation, I want to see God move more. There's my, there's, there's, there's my prideful, um, there's my selfish request. I want to see God move more. I'm desperate for more of God. I see the failures in my own life. I see the sin in my own life. And I realize that I am not capable of this on my own. There is nothing that I can do on my own to save people. There is nothing that I can do on my own to better myself short of working with God, reading the Scripture, praying, and desiring to be more conformed to the image of Christ. That's about the extent of what I'm capable of. There's not many things that I'm good at. I want to look more like Jesus. I want to look more like Christ. I want to see people love God and love Jesus and worship Him and honor Him more and more every day. My heart breaks for this town. It breaks for so many that will neglect God because they do not like what His Word says. They'll forsake God for the faults they find in the messenger. 
Because that's what they did in the Old Testament. That's what they did in the New Testament. That's what they've done for the past 2,000 years of Christian history. They will choose to neglect God and other Christians because they do not feel love or mercy or grace in the messages of Christ in the Gospel. Raise your hand if you're deserving of Christ. Raise your hand if you control God's loving kindness or His mercy towards you. Raise your hand if by your own merit you can lay hold to the latch of the doors of heaven on your own works. This isn't even in my notes. Um, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too, we Christians, we who have been saved and brought into new life by Jesus Christ, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. John 3.36, by the way. But God... Verse 4, everything's bad, there is nothing but death, there is no hope but God. Verse 4, but God being rich in, oh there it is, mercy, because of His great love, there it is again, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There it is. That is the most amazing, loving, merciful, gracious message your ears could ever hear. That you're an enemy of God. Friendship with the world, says James, is enmity with God. You were at war with Him. War is never one-sided, by the way. War is never one-sided. It is at least two-sided. Which means that when you enter into war with God, He will be at war with you. But even in that state of disbelief, unbelief, non-care, non-conformity, and non-love of the Word of God in Christ Jesus, dead in our transgressions, hell-bound, literally with the hammer down, if you will, incapable of responding to Him, acting as a child of wrath, God steps in, rich in mercy, because of His great love, with which He loves us, though we're dead in our sin, and brings us in a new life. If that is not loving and gracious and beautiful and wonderful to you, if it is not precious to you, that speaks to the condition of your heart. Loudly. That is the most beautiful glorious message we could ever listen to or have the ability to comprehend if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. That is grace. Biblical grace. That is love. True love. And that is mercy. A mercy that we do not deserve in any way whatsoever. 
I want us to go from here with the understanding that we walk, if we are Christians, in the love of God, in the grace of God, in the mercy of God. So what, we sh- what should we do? We should walk out the good works that He has prepared beforehand, before He laid the foundation of the world. We should do those things. Walk out the good works, brother. Walk out the good works, sister. Why? Because God's called us to them. And He has created us. If we're Christians, He has made us to look more like the image of His Son. That we would be constantly conformed to Christ. Grace, mercy, peace, and love abound in that message. Deeply. Deeply. Father, we know, Lord... the only way that we will respond to You is by a movement of the Spirit. You say in John 3 that the wind blows where it wishes and we do not see where it comes from where it come from, or where it's going, but we see the effects of it. You say that's what it's like with the Holy Spirit. So God, that You would breathe on this place in a mighty way, Lord, that the wind of Your salvation would come here and fall upon this, ha- this town in a heavy manner. Lord, the word for glory in the Old Testament literally meaning weightiness. That we would be weighed down with the reality of God and weighed down with the glory of Your presence. Lord, that You would lay us low even as Christians to worship You more. To have a deeper fear of You which will drive for, for You a greater love. God, convict us even as Christians of our sin that we might turn from those sins and lay our hands to the Christ. Lord, that You would do a mighty work here, that You would convert souls, that You would change hearts, that You would change minds and opinions towards the things of the Gospel. That everything else would fade away and go away. That it would mean nothing, absolutely nothing as we look at Christ. That the focal point of our religion and our Christianity would be Him rather than us or our tradition that our joy would be found in Him rather than us or our tradition. And oh God, that we would place our hope in Him rather than in ourselves or a work that we have done in accordance with our own tradition. Lord, we love You. I thank You for the message of beautiful love and peace and grace and mercy in the Gospel. God, that You would saturate our hearts with, Lord, the joy that Christ bled and died for us. Father, it is in Your name we pray, in the highest name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. And in accordance with Your will that we ask, Amen.